do bring uh, big hellos from Third Avenue Baptist in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I've had several people actually text me this morning, because when I don't show up at church, right, everybody kind of wants to know where I am, and if they don't announce it in the Sunday morning service, like Greg is so-and-so, I'll get, you know, several text messages saying, hey, where are you, what are you doing this, this Sunday, and when I say hey, I'm here with the, with the Diedrichs and Redeeming Grace, I always get back all kinds of messages just saying, oh my goodness, tell them of our love for them, tell the Diedrichs we love them, uh, tell them we miss them, all the rest of it, so it's, it's really great to be here with you, even though it's like 114 degrees outside or something like that. We flew into Phoenix last night. We got delayed in Louisville for six hours because United Airlines was searching for a screw that they, to, I forget, it wasn't even a big screw. It was like a little screw. And they finally found the screw and then it turned out that the screw didn't fit the hole that it was supposed to. So they had to fly in whatever they were looking for from Chicago. So we had to wait for a plane to get there. Uh, and then they said, they announced that, they, that the maintenance man for all the airplanes in the Louisville airport had left and they couldn't find him. And so anyway, we got delayed for six hours and flew in, I, I guess right about 9.30, 9.15, 9.30. Anyway, it's pitch black and 108 degrees outside. And all three of us were just kind of wondering, how do you get 108 degrees when there's not even any sun out? So I'm grateful to be here with you, grateful to be here in the air conditioning uh, here at uh, uh, RGC. I, I, you, know, you, you drive around the country some and you see, see things like hotels that are advertising why you should stay at them and occasionally you run across a hotel that out on their neon sign out in front of the hotel will say something like, color TVs. You're like, well, is anybody really drawn into a place because you have color TVs now? But I do actually wonder if you guys put out a big neon sign out there that says, we have good air conditioning, if you might have a thousand people here next Sunday morning. It's hot here, but I don't want to talk about that for too long. How many of you have ever heard of uh, uh, the phrase or the, the word, the sort of made-up word, Christianese? Anybody know what Christianese is? It's like this set of words and phrases that make its way into our vocabulary as Christians, and we just tend to kind of throw these phrases out without really thinking about them, and Yet there's nothing in the Bible, at least as far as I can tell, that sort of underlies those phrases. You, you probably know some of the things we say as Christians. A lot of times they come out in prayer in particular because we're kind of looking for a little bit more formal language in prayer sometimes. Like a hedge of protection. You ever prayed that the Lord would put a hedge of protection around somebody? What exactly does that mean? I mean, a hedge is like a, it's a literal bank of bushes. So are we asking for the Lord to put bushes around a person that are supposed to protect them from Satan? As far as I can tell, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about a hedge of protection. What about traveling mercies? You ever heard of anybody praying for traveling? Why traveling mercies? And what exactly is that set of things that are mercies, particularly for travel, that you don't need just like driving around Phoenix, right? What do you need in traveling, and where does that come from in the Bible? And I just it makes me wonder, are there other categories of mercies that we're not asking for enough? Like, are there getting married mercies? Are there playing sports mercies? Are there, for crying out loud, parenting teenagers mercies? Because if there's a jar somewhere up in heaven that's labeled mercies for parenting teenagers and I'm not getting them because people aren't praying for them, I'm going to be mad. What about the little phrase in prayer, lead, guide, and direct? You ever prayed that? I mean, growing up, that's what, that's what people in my church would pray every single prayer. I mean, you'd have the, the sort of prayer before the sermon and the guy would, the deacon or whoever would get up to the pulpit and he'd say, Lord, we just pray that you would lead, guide, and direct us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
right? Lead, guide, and direct. Nowhere in the Bible. I'm sure lead is and guide and direct, but they're never in that order altogether. What about this one? Give your heart to Jesus. There's nothing in the Bible that says you're supposed to give your heart to Jesus. There's you're supposed to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but there's nothing in there that says you're supposed to give your heart to Jesus. What, what about this one? That we do things in the Lord, or we do things in Christ. Now, there's the hook, because that one actually is in the Bible. It's actually in the New Testament some hundred and some odd times that we do this in Christ. We do this in the Lord. We are in Christ. We are seated with Christ. It's just everywhere in the New Testament. And yet, I think sometimes in this weird kind of way, we are perfectly happy to say phrases like, hedge of protection or traveling mercies. And yet when we read over the phrase in the New Testament that says we do certain things in Christ or we are in Christ, we tend to think that that's just Paul using a little bit of Christianese, right? Phrase doesn't really mean anything. It just means sort of kind of in a Christian way or, you know, as a Christian, something like that. But we don't put a whole lot of significance on it. Well, today as we look at a particular passage of Scripture, I want to try to fill in that phrase, in Christ, and I want to try to convince you that that in Christ phrase and, you know, the opposite of it, Christ being in us, is one of the most explosive theological truths that you're ever going to run across in your Christian life, and that it has massive ramifications all over the place for you as a Christian. So take a Bible. This is where we're going this morning. The, the phrase uh, in Christ shows up in the passage that we're going to be talking about. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at just four verses of that particular chapter. Now, I don't particularly like dropping right into the middle of a book because every book of the Bible uh, functions as a book. It's making an argument from chapter one to chapter, wherever it ends, they're all moving in a certain way. And so when you drop into the middle of the book, it's like, it's like putting your feet into the middle of a river, right? And if you don't understand where that river started and where it ended, you're really not going to understand what's going on with the particular section of the river, the book in this, in, in this case, that you're dealing with. So I don't particularly like doing this, and yet we're going to do it anyway because I'm only here with you, you know, this one time. But my encouragement to you would be not to treat the books of the Bible, much less the Bible as a whole, as just a jar of fortune cookies that you can close your eyes, reach in, pull one out, and, you know, there it is. There's the old joke of, you know, the guy doing that, and he, he comes out with, you know, Judas went and hanged himself. Okay, interesting. Go and do likewise. You know, you just, you can't treat the Bible like that. I don't want to treat Romans 6 like that. Uh, so let me just give you some, some background about the book of Romans. It was written just about 1970 years ago or so in, in the year, we think right around the year A.D. 57, right? So not 1957, like 2,000 years ago, 57, the year of our Lord, 57, by this man named Paul. He was one of the two most influential, well-known uh, followers of Jesus in the early Christian church, right alongside Peter. Paul was a missionary. He understood himself to have been specially called by Jesus, the risen Christ, to take the good news of salvation to all the nations of the world, especially Gentile nations, so non-Jewish ones. He sort of said, I'm going I'm to leave the Jewish people to, to Peter and the rest of them, and I'm going after the Gentiles. That was, that was Paul's own kind of personal mission. So, he spent his life preaching and planning churches really all over the known Roman Empire. 
And along the way, as he made his way to all these different cities and planted churches, he would look back occasionally and think, well, hey, I want to I find out what's, what's going on, for example, in the city of Corinth where there was a church or the city of Ephesus. Or he'd get some news from somebody that things were not going well, for instance, in the, in the city of Ephesus. And he'd write a letter back there to find out you know, what was going on. And, and, and he would tell them, give them some instruction on what they ought to do to fix the problem. Romans is not a book like that. This book is interesting because Paul actually didn't, believe it or not, plant the church in Rome. He planted the church in Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Colossae, Thessalonica, all, all over the place. He planted all of those other churches that you read about in the New Testament. He did not plant Rome. In fact, he had never been to Rome. The church in Rome was independent of him entirely. But he's on his way to visit Rome. And so he writes the book of Romans in order to basically introduce himself to that church so that when he arrives, they'll know right off the bat that this guy preaches the same gospel of grace that we do. That's what he's trying to do, because what he's going to do is introduce himself. He's going to live with them for a little while there in, in Rome, and then he's actually going to ask them for help in making his way on to Spain, which to him was the uttermost part of the earth that Jesus told him to go to. And so he wants to, to give him an introduction right up front and say, look, I, I believe the same gospel that you do. So for the first five chapters, what you get in, in Romans is basically Paul just saying, listen, I believe, just like you do, that all human beings are sunk in sin. We've all rebelled against God. We all deserve to die because of that rebellion. And yet, God in his mercy sent Jesus Christ to be a sacrifice of atonement, to live and die and rise in our place. And we are saved, if we are saved, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we've managed to become in ourselves, not even because of anything the Holy Spirit does to create in us, but simply and solely in 100% because of what Jesus has done for us. Salvation is 100% by grace. That's the whole first five chapters of the book. And you might even say that's the, that's the sort, sort of theological machinery that, that drives the whole rest of the book. Paul is saying, I believe this gospel of grace through Jesus Christ, O Church of Rome, just like you do. Well, today we're going to move into the first four verses of chapter 6, where Paul is really starting this whole new section in the book that's teaching basically about a Christian's relationship with sin. Like if we're saved by grace through Jesus Christ, declared righteous because of what Jesus has done to us, what does that mean for how we relate to this ongoing problem of sin in our own hearts and in the world? How are we supposed to think through that? And the basic message of it, and you get it right at the beginning of, of Romans chapter 6, is it, it's pretty unsurprising the Christian's relationship to sin is that the Christian's life is not supposed to be marked by sin. And that, that's, the, that's the unsurprising message of, of really the whole you know, section from Romans chapter 6 to Romans chapter 8. But in the first few sentences of Romans 6, Paul gives that whole very simple unsurprising idea a, a turn. He changes it. He, he opens up a new angle on it that ends up catapulting us into an absolutely mind-blowing reality. It's a reality that underlies the whole of the gospel. It lies at the root and foundation of our salvation. And it is an idea, as mind-blowing as it is, that we Christians almost never think about. And I want to try to get you to think about it. So keep that in mind. It's really important. Now let's read the text. Look what Paul says, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? So in light of this whole gospel of grace that I've been telling you, 
what do we say about that? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. All right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to it in just a second, this sort of phrase that underlies, that, that sort of, you know, it's the flag that kind of flies over this whole idea. I'm going to tell you what that phrase is in, in just a minute. If you look in your bulletin, you can see it a lot quicker if you haven't looked at the title of the sermon, but I'm going to give it to you in just a second. But first, I want to just dive into the logic of these first four verses very quickly, and I want you to see what Paul's doing. In verse 1 of chapter 6, at first, what does it look like he's doing? What shall we say then? So he's finished the gospel of grace in chapter 1 through 5. And it looks like in verse 1 there that he's just answering a kind of -of run-of-the-mill objection. It's not even that complicated. Okay, Paul, if grace covers all sin, if we're not saved by getting rid of sin in our lives, if we're not saved by, you know, having more good works than bad works in our lives so that, you know, we can show that to God at at the end of time, if that's not how we're saved, then can't we just go on sinning as much as we want. And if we go on sinning as much as we want, in fact, if we just pile up sins, doesn't that give God the opportunity to give us more grace even so that he's even more glorified? It's it's a kind of -of run-of-the-mill objection, and Paul answers it straight up. No, no, that is not correct. Nothing surprising there. And in fact, you can can read the first couple of verses as if Paul is just this kind of, you know, frustrated old man batting away irritating objections, you know, where he says, he says, is, is this true? By no means, you know, no, no, heck no, it's not true, that's not correct. And then he goes on, don't you know, as if they already know this thing, right? But here's the thing, I, I don't think that you've just got Paul as a frustrated old man answering an objection here. I think Paul is doing is using that objection to, to, yes, give the answer by no means, absolutely not. You can't just go on sinning in order that God will show you more grace. It's not true. I think he uses that, though, to uncover for us a mind-blowing truth, not just about our relationship to sin, don't do it, but a mind-blowing truth about our relationship to Jesus. And he does it a little bit at a time. Like, like, he's got a smile. I don't think he's frustrated. I think he kind of has a smile and a sparkle in his eye as he's uncovering this truth. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a dad bringing out Christmas presents to his kids, right? One at a time. You don't bring them all. You bring one at a time, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger as you, as you show them to your kids, and, and you're smiling, and your eyes are sparkling because you're seeing the kids' eyes get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what's supposed to be happening to you as a reader through these four verses. So he raises this question. He answers it, No. You can't can't just go on sinning. But then look what he does in verse 2. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And what's supposed to happen in your mind as you're reading that is you're supposed to go, wow, what? Paul, you haven't said anything through this whole book so far about us having died to sin. You haven't said anything. Anything like that. And yet you're talking as if we've already heard of it. Don't you know that you have died to, to sin? Do you see what he's doing there? He's, he's introducing this brand new idea with a sparkle in his eyes. Don't you know that you've died to sin? And you're supposed to go, what? 
died to sin. It's a mystery, right? We don't know what it means. It's like, it's like wrapping paper on the, on the gift, and questions are supposed to flood your mind. Wait a second. I haven't died. I'm still alive. What do you mean I've died to sin? I haven't died to sin. I still sin all the time. What are you talking about, Paul? Is this a metaphor? Is this just is this a literary image? Is this just a little bit of Christianese that you're throwing on us that doesn't really have any meaning to it? What does it mean that I've died to sin? So he unwraps it again in three to four. And, and again, it's not a scold. It's a tease. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with, bap- with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we might walk in newness of life. Okay, now what, what is, what's he talking about there? What he's talking about, the flag that flies over this whole thing, the title of the sermon is Union with Christ. The reality that every single believer in Jesus Christ, every single Christian is vitally and really and spiritually connected to Jesus. So that what happened to Jesus, God looks at as having happened to you and vice versa. So at my own church, I like to give a main idea. Here it is. It's very simple. You are as a Christian. If you're a Christian, then you are as a Christian intimately and vitally united or connected to Jesus Christ. And the ramifications of that in your life as a Christian are explosive. They're just huge. I want to unfold uh, this idea, this this text really in, in two points. Number one, if you're a Christian, then the glory of the gospel of Christ for you is not just that you've been saved by Jesus. As if he's something away up there who did something for you and there's no real relationship. It's like, uh, thanks? Right? As if he's just a cosmic government agency up there that sort of sends you a check and you're like, okay, don't know you, but thanks. I appreciate that. It's not like that at all. It's not just that you've been saved by Jesus from a distance. It's that you are really and truly united or connected to him. And we're going to unfold what that means. And then point number two is just going to be sort of looking at the, the fireworks display that comes from that reality, the implications of that are enormous. Those are the two points. Number one, not just that you've been saved by him, but that you really are, really and truly are united to him, connected to him. Number two, the implications are enormous. So let's look at it. Point number one is where we're going to do most of the sort of theological, textual, heavy lifting. So just kind of stick with me. We'll make our way through it. If you're a Christian, then you are really and truly united to or connected to Jesus. That's the main thing Paul's sort of unfolding. He's unwrapping it a little bit at a time here for us. And it's the first time he's done it in the book. It's a brand new idea. It's supposed to blow your mind. That's how it's operating. In fact, I I think this idea of teaching Christians that they're united to Christ is the whole reason why he brings up the objection in verse 1 in the first place. I mean, it's an obvious objection. He needs to deal with it, right? It's, It's the main objection that comes up when you start talking about a gospel of grace. You're not saved because of your ability to to get rid of sin in your life. You're not saved because of your ability to, you know, overload or overweigh sin with more good works than bad ones. That's not it. Message of Christianity is you're saved by grace. Immediate objection. Well, can't I just go on doing whatever I want to do? Paul needs to work on that objection. But I think he does it. He brings the whole thing up and answers it by catapulting us into this amazing truth about our relationship with Jesus. We are united to him so that what happened to Jesus is also looked at by God as having happened to us. All right, now, in order to unfold what that means, I want you to look at a couple of details. First of all, look at that phrase when he first brings it up in verse 2. 
By no means, you can't go on sinning. Look at that phrase. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The phrase died to sin there is not an ongoing thing. It does not say, how can those of you who are dying to sin? Now that's true in a different sense. That's not what we're talking about today. That's, that's sanctification, but that's not what Paul says here. He says, you died to sin. It's not ongoing. It's a simple past tense thing. It happened at a particular moment in time. When did it happen? When did that happen? Well, it's, it's when we became Christians. It's when we put our faith in Jesus. That's the moment when we died to sin. Now, that helps us understand why Paul brings up baptism in the next verse. See, do you do not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's saying in verse 3 there, when did you die to sin? When did that thing happen? It's when you were baptized. Now, why does he, why does he say that? Because that's kind of confusing, right? Because that sounds like baptism is the thing that's causing you to die to Christ. It's not the way Paul ever uses baptism, though. He never teaches that baptism is the thing that actually affects salvation in your life. He doesn't do that. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is your faith in Christ that causes you to become a Christian. It's just that as the, in the way Paul thinks about it, there's this whole complex of things. There's this whole like wad of things that happen right at the beginning of the Christian life. And he'll talk about them in, in all kinds of different ways. So what, what's, in that, what's in that complex of things? Well, faith is, is when he gets right down to it, Faith is, faith is the thing that saves you. But like immediately at the starting gun of the Christian life, there are other things that happen. In Paul's mind, at the beginning of the Christian life, you get baptized. You become a member of a church. You get united to the body of Christ. You, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. All those things are this complex of, of what, you know, I mean, Paul wouldn't have had this metaphor, but it's like all those things are, the, are, are what happens at the starting gun of Christianity. He's very clear that it's faith that saves you. But at the starting gun, boom, there's baptism, there's church membership, there's union with the body of Christ, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All that stuff happens when the gun goes off, right? And so when he's talking about, you know, when did you die with Christ, what he means is when you became a Christian. At the moment, all that stuff happened, including baptism. Now, I want to pause, I want to pause right there because it's, it's, an, it's an important thing to, to think about. I think the reason you and I wouldn't immediately go to sort of baptism and church membership and that sort of thing at the beginning of the Christian life when we're thinking about union with Christ is because we don't tend to put that much emphasis on it in the first place. I mean, to us, the beginning of the Christian life is this very narrow thing, right? It's, it's faith in Christ, and that's kind of it. And, and now you've got options. You can join a church if you want to. You can get baptized if you want to. Download a podcast. Maybe watch this television show. There's a bunch of options. Faith is the deal. Paul didn't think about it like that. There was a bunch of stuff that happened right at the beginning of the Christian life that was necessary and understood and unavoidable. You become a Christian, you have faith in Christ, what's going to come immediately at the same time is going to be baptism, church membership, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all, all the rest of it. It's all going to happen right there. And, and Paul just thought of it as a, as a very natural thing. So what does that mean in terms of implications? Well, well, I mean, just one minor little implication is that for Paul, an unbaptized Christian was just unthinkable. I mean, if somebody came up to him and said, hey, I'm a Christian, 
Oh, have you, oh yeah, have you been, you've been baptized, I assume? He, he, and the person would go, no, nah, I just haven't, I just decided I'm not going to do that. Paul would have just been like, wait, 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 what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Or, you know, to take it a step further, if somebody, you know, bebopped up to him and said, hey, Paul, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Christ, I've been baptized. Oh, that's awesome, dude. What, you know, what, what church are you a member of? You Antioch, Jerusalem, you know, Thessalonica, which one are you? No, I'm, I'm unaffiliated, man unaffiliated Christian, I'm just united to Christ, and that's that. Paul would have been like, what are you talking about? You, you, can't, you can't do that. Like, it's like Paul doesn't contemplate, the New Testament doesn't contemplate a believer in Jesus that's not a member of a local church. Now, I'm preaching through, just started it this, this past Sunday, preaching through a, uh, the book of Revelation. And you know how Revelation starts. It starts with Jesus sending seven letters to seven of his churches right, in, in the, the region. And one of the points that I made to, you know, people in my own congregation was, listen, you'll notice that there is no eighth letter that is addressed by the Lord Jesus to all those of you who have kept yourselves unstained by the church. There's not one to all of you unaffiliated Christians out there, you lone wolves, you lone rangers. There's not one like that because as Jesus is walking among the lampstands and ruling the world, his mind is on his churches. And he expects all of his people to be united to one of those which are essentially local embassies of the high king of heaven in this fallen and dying world. So, you know, I mean, I'll put a point on it. Maybe you're here this morning and you know, you, you're, you're not a member of a church. Maybe that's a decision that you've made. Maybe it's not exactly. Maybe you're new to town, something like that. Well, I just want to push it on you that the Bible expects you to be a member of a local church. Could be here at Redeeming Grace. Could be somewhere totally different. I don't know. But the Bible expects you to be a member of a church, a vital living member. That's just a kind of, you know, sub point of this whole thing. So let's talk about the main idea now, union with Christ. The main thing Paul is talking about, union with Christ. So through verses 2 and 3 and 4, Paul is essentially unwrapping this gift. He's unwrapping, unfolding this idea of union with Christ, giving it more and more detail. So he starts with, we died, right? You're like, well, wait, 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 when did that happen? It died when you, were bap- when you became a Christian at your baptism, right, at the beginning of the Christian life. When you became a Christian, you were baptized into Jesus' death. And then just as Jesus was raised out of death, so you are now raised to newness of life. And then, I mean, just to push ahead out of our text this morning, in verse 5, he kind of holds the whole thing up, right? If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When you became a Christian, you died. And you were raised to newness of life, just like Jesus died and was raised to newness of life. And now, verse 5, in the future, you're going to rise to a new resurrection, bodily even, yourself. The crucial word there, you can see it. I mean, it's not union with Christ, united with Christ. It's not a theological word that we just kind of came up with to describe a truth. It's right there in the Bible, verse 5. If we have been united With him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You know what that that word is? You know what it means? It means grown together. That's what it means. To be united in the Greek means to have grown together. It's actually a word from horticulture. Anybody anybody do any horticulture? 
That's, that's what it's from. It, 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 it's to, when you graft, I don't know anything about horticulture, but what I've learned from reading books is that when you graft or connect a branch into a living vine, it grows together with that plant, with that vine, until that foreign branch is one with the plant. So what happens? So that the sap of the plant, the original plant, begins to flow through that branch and make it living and fruitful because it is grown together. It's, it's united. Now, where did Paul get that idea? Why would he pick this word, united, grown together from horticulture, a branch grafted onto a vine, and decide to use it here in this theological Wait, well, it's a perfect word because it perfectly captures what Jesus was teaching when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And Paul is just learning from Jesus and applying what Jesus said in John 15 right here in Romans 6. And what he's saying is between Jesus the vine and the believer, the branch, there is a vital and intimate and living spiritual union. That's what he's saying. Okay, so what was that? How does that work? What does it mean? Well, let me start with a definition of union with Christ. There are a lot of different definitions. This is the gist of it. Union with Christ, to be, to be united with Christ, is a phrase that we use to describe this intimate, vital, spiritual unity between Christ and his people. And because of that union, because of the fact that we're grown into Christ as believers and that union exists, Jesus is therefore the source of all our life and strength, and it is through him that we receive every benefit of salvation. Right? It's the phrase we use, union with Christ is the phrase we use to describe this intimate, vital, spiritual unity between Christ and his people, and because of that unity, Jesus becomes the source or is the source of all our life and strength, and it is from him and through him that we receive every benefit of salvation. That idea is all over the New Testament. Sometimes it's the image of a branch to a vine. Some, there, there are other images. So, for example, we as believers are said to be a building with Christ as our foundation, right? We're said to be in a marriage covenant with Jesus, Jesus and his bride, the groom and his bride. We're said to be a body, right? The church is a, it's a, it's a body, you know, a well-defined thing, and all the members of it are, are all together. We're said to be a vine and branches, as we've seen. And, and you can see what's going on with every single one of those images, the building, the body, the marriage covenant, the, the, the vine. They're all talking about the idea of unity and the idea that what happens to one particular member of that unity happens to the whole. And where does that whole idea of unity among all believers come from? It comes from, from Jesus. I'm the vine and you're the branches. Now let's think about that phrase, in Christ, and Christ being in us. We talked about it as, you know, is it, what, what, what does that mean? Is it just Christianese? Is it just this, you know, way of acknowledging that we're all spiritual and Christian? Well, no. When Paul uses it 120 some odd times throughout his letters, he's talking about this very idea. Because, because for, for me to be in Christ and Christ to be in me is talking about that very unity between vine and branch. So every time Paul says that, it ought to click in your mind. Oh, he's talking about that huge theological idea of being united with Christ. That's not just, that's not just Christianese. So, so let's talk about it. First of all, let's talk about the fact that we are in Christ. We are in, in other words, we're united to Christ. The idea shows up dozens of times in the New Testament. You'll find it in phrases like in Christ, in the Lord, and it's a profound truth. And in fact, it's a truth that stretches from eternity to eternity in the New Testament, in the way it's talked about. 
So, for example, it's, it's rooted in eternity past. The idea that you are united to Christ, that you as a believer are in Christ, is, is rooted all the way back in eternity past, in God's eternal plan of redemption when he determined that you were going to be united to Christ. So in Ephesians, Paul says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In 2 Timothy, he saved us not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, his purpose and grace, he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, in eternity past, God already was beginning this work of uniting you to Jesus. He gave you to Jesus as a gift so that Jesus' work in life and death and resurrection, it wasn't just a shot in the dark. It, it, it wasn't a, a thing that, that had doubt about its outcome. The outcome was sure. I mean, when in the councils of eternity, however this worked out, when the plan of redemption between Father, Son, and Spirit was being worked out. It's not as if, you know, they, they said, okay, we've got this great plan of redemption. You know, eternal Son of God, you have to become a human for all eternity, and you have to, you know, live, live on their earth for 33 years, and then you have to die the most horrific death that's ever been come up with by, by those horrific human beings down there. You've got you to do all that, and it, it's not as if the Son of God looked at the Father and said, hey, what are the chances of success of this mission of anybody ever coming? And the Father goes, eh, don't know, but it's worth a shot, don't you think? That's not how it worked out. No, it was, I, the Father, have given you a people, and you are going to die in their place so that they will be saved. 100%. There will be no failure. There can be no failure of your work. No, Jesus' mission was a rescue mission of a particular chosen people. Also, Paul says here, even in, in 6, not only is it is union with Christ rooted in eternity past, but we as believers were and are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. You see, that's, that's Paul's point, right? You've been baptized into his death. You've been, ba- you've, you've been raised to newness of life with him. And in the future, there will be a resurrection with him. You see what he's saying? He's, he's saying that what Christ did 2,000 years ago God conceived of us, you and me, as doing in him and with him. When he lived, God looked at Jesus and also saw, that's Greg living, that's Greg living, that's John living, that's Lindsay living. When Jesus died, it was, yes, that's Jesus dying. It's also Greg dying, it's John dying, it's Lindsay dying. It's you, my people, dying. He conceived of it as that happening to you, which is why it's completely right and fitting for Paul to say, we died to sin. Because united to Christ, we did 2,000 years ago when Jesus died. From there, you know, the present, we, we died with him. It rockets into eternity future. Look at verse 5. We will be united with him in a resurrection like, like his. I mean, you've already got with the, bat, you know, the newness of life thing at, at the end of verse 4. You've got, you've got spiritual resurrection right there, right? You're, you're united to Christ He rose from the dead, therefore you rose from the dead. Spiritual newness of life right now, but it doesn't end there. There's more resurrection to come. Because because Jesus rose from the dead bodily, you too are united to him and therefore will rise to bodily newness of life as well on the final day. His life is and will be ours. His triumph is and will be ours. You ever wonder how I, Paul, can say something so absurd as you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms right now? 
You're not, I'm sorry, this is a nice building, but it is not the heavenly realms. And you're not seated there in any kind of physical sense. But because you're united to Christ and Christ is seated in the heavenly realms, you are already seated in the heavenly realms. That's what he means. You're united to Christ. In Christ we die. In Christ we have been raised to newness of life. And in Christ we will be raised from the grave at the last day. I'm sure you guys do membership interviews here at, at Redeeming Grace. Probably most of you who are members of the church went through a kind of conversation with one of your pastors. And probably one of the things they ask you is, hey, tell me, tell me what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. We do this at 3rd at Avenue. And it's, it's incredible to me how many people will make their way through their sort of you know, explanation of the gospel and leave out the resurrection of Christ. Now, why, why do they do that? You know, I mean, it's great. It's like, we're sinners. God, God created us. We sinned against him. Christ came. He lived and, and he died. And if we trust in him, his death can stand for our death. And, and we're therefore, you know, declared to be righteous. They'll just leave off the resurrection. But think about the resurrection in terms of this idea of union with Christ. And you start to understand how the gospel doesn't make sense if you don't have the resurrection. Why? Because, friend, if the vine is dead, so are all the branches that are connected to it. But if the vine is alive, then so are all the branches that are connected to it. I mean, do you, do you, know, do you, you realize that all the blessings of eternity, every single blessing that you have, every single blessing that you're going to get through salvation, is not because you have earned it, obviously. It's not even because God just sees that Jesus you know, did this transaction over here and then pours out the blessing of justification, sanctification, glorification on you directly. It's not how it works. Do you know the reason you're justified, declared righteous as a Christian? It's because Jesus actually is righteous. And God declares him to be righteous. And because you're a branch connected to him, you also get declared righteous. You know why you're sanctified? You know why you're being made holy? It's because Jesus already is holy. And the sap of holiness is working its way into your life. Do you know why you're going to be glorified? It's not just that God is going to like, you know, it's not like his eyes are going to shoot out laser beams and like glorify you. No, it's because Jesus is glorified and will be even more glorified. And because you're just a branch connected to the vine, boom, you get glorified too. Every benefit of salvation, every blessing of salvation that you're ever going to have comes to you because of Jesus and because you're united to him. Second, Christ is in us, right? I mean, we, had, we, had, we are in Christ. We're, we're united to him. But also Christ is, is in us. You think about the vine, the, the life and energy and sap of the vine enlivens the branches, right? It, the, the fluids flow through the whole thing from the source. Same, same with us in Jesus. When we're united with him, his resurrection life pushes through and flows through us, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about all the, the ramifications of that. They're just, they're just enormous. It's humbling. And you realize all of a sudden that life as a Christian comes from being united to the vine. And if you were ever cut off from the vine, then you die. It's transforming. I mean, I understand that if you graft a, if you take a fruitless olive branch, right? Take an absolutely fruitless olive branch and graft it into a strong, healthy tree, it, it grows, starts to produce fruit. The life of the healthy tree pushes into the dead branch and transforms it. Same thing with us. It's also uniting. I mean, the fact that we are, as believers, each of us united 
to Jesus divine means that we are also united to one another. Because we have the same source, we have the same vine. The same sap flows through each and every one of us. This is where the imagery in the New Testament of the body is so useful, right? I mean, I mean you know, a, a body that the New Testament uses to describe a church, this is, this is a body, right? And, and it's, a, it's a well-defined thing, right? I know that this is a part of it and this is a part of it. And, you know, I mean, this ring seldom comes off my finger, like if, if ever. It, I, and yet it, I know that it's not, a, it's not a part of my body, even though it's been there for 20 years, Right? You might even say this, I mean, the ring is like a regular attender even of my body, right? But it's not a member of the body. It's not vitally connected to it. The sap, so to speak, of the body doesn't flow into that, into that ring. You as a believer are vitally united and connected to every other believer, especially in a local church. And that's true. I mean, the interesting thing is your church grows. You'll find this out. That's true even if you've never met a particular member. You're still united to that person because you're united to the same vine. And as your church gets bigger, you're going you're gonna to notice this happening. You're going to walk in and you're going to introduce yourself to someone who you think is a visitor. And they're going to say, oh, I've been a member of your church for three years. It'll happen. You're still united to that person, even if you've never met them before. I mean, same thing's true, true of, the, of the body, right? I mean, I mean, technically speaking, my elbow and my ear have never met one another. And yet they're connected to the same body. It's also hugely encouraging, right? Gives us courage for the fight to know that we're united to Christ. Colossians 1.27, Paul talks about the riches of the glory of the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's think about some of those in a little more detail. I've kind of knocked them out there, but point number two, this will be a much shorter point. We did all the theological heavy lifting, but just think about, let's just, let's just watch the fireworks for a second. Implications of our union with Christ. They are, they are enormous. So think about this. Think about what we mentioned just a second ago. Our union with Christ makes us sensible, makes us aware of, that's what that means, our utter dependence on Christ. L- listen to a little more of what Jesus says about that. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. So whoever abides in me and I in him, that's the one who bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, in fact, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. See, if your heart is really united to Christ, then you'll have a deep, deep, deep sense that everything good about you, everything good that you're doing, everything good that you're accomplishing is happening only because you're united to Jesus and your heart will rejoice because of that. You'll have a deep, deep sense that if you were ever cut off from the vine, praise God, that'll never happen if you're a true believer of Jesus because Jesus holds you in. But if it ever did, you'd wither and die. You're utterly dependent on Jesus. Our union with Jesus is also transforming. It connects us to the transforming power of Christ's resurrection life. It's like that, it's like that branch when the sap pushes into the branch and gives it new life. The same kind of thing can happen and does happen, in fact, in a Christian's life. And I wonder if you see that across the kind of waterfront of your life. Do you, do you, see, do you see the sap of Jesus' resurrection life pushing out and transforming stuff? Changing your desires, changing your wants, changing your values, changing the things that, that, that you're pursuing in life. Do you see that happening? Maybe there's some area of your life that is dead and 
you're kind of thinking, yeah, I think the Lord's done with that. Well, take this encouragement, brother, sister. There is no area of your life that is so dead that the transforming power of Christ's resurrection life can't change it. If you think your marriage is dead on the vine, then, then put your eyes on it and then lift your eyes to heaven and say, Lord, I want you to push into that area of my life and give it life. There's no area of your life that that can't happen to. I, I mean, it, it's even true in, in, our, in our memories, in the things we remember about our past life. I know so many Christians are, are just like hammered down by the weight of a sort of phantom guilt in their lives. Jesus can transform all that stuff. There was a, a woman in my church years ago who uh, had a, a horrible experience in her, in her life. She, she was uh, pregnant with her, I believe it was her first daughter. Uh, she ended up with some sort of terrible medical condition and, and nearly died several different times uh, while and, and after giving birth to her daughter. And for years after that, she told the story of how Anytime, you know, she and her husband would start to think about having another child, it was just this dark and terrifying and frightening experience to her as she remembered it in her mind. It was just this phantom sort of hanging over her entire life. But she said some years later, after she'd had a, a couple more kids, she said, you know, the amazing thing, and, and I didn't even have to do a whole lot of work on this, but she said the amazing thing was that God rewrote that memory for her in her own mind. Resurrection life pushed even into that memory. And she said he, he rewrote it. And it became not this phantom of, of terror and despair that was hanging over my life, but it became this wonderful trophy of God's goodness and grace in bringing me through the valley of the shadow of death. Friend, the same thing can happen for you. That old sin that comes up in your mind and dogs you every day with guilt, the Lord can come in and, and he can rewrite that whole memory so that it's not this phantom hanging over your life anymore, but it's a trophy tacked to the walls of heaven like the head of a dead moose or something. Look what God did in killing that. God can rewrite those experiences in incredible ways. We already talked about how our union with Christ creates union between believers. And that's especially true in a, in a local church. I mean, you could preach a whole sermon on this. You read Matthew 16, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 12, and 13, and 14. To be united to Christ is to be united to his body. And once you're connected to Christ in that way and connected to Christ's body, the natural outcome of that is to rejoice. I am vitally connected to the body of Christ. And the New Testament says that all of us are growing up together into our head, the source, who is Jesus himself. Here's, an, here's another thing that I want, you to, I want you to think about. Our union with Christ affects a break. It causes a break in our union with the old, fallen, and dying creation. It creates a break in our union with the old, fallen, dying creation. If you're a human being, you're united, connected to something. You, you just are. You're a human being, and theologically speaking, you're united to something. And what you're united to, if you're not a Christian, is the old fallen King Adam, right? Adam fell. He rebelled against God. Blah, the whole thing. Heads down the tubes. And guess what? If you're united, if you're not united to Christ, you're united to that stuff, and you're headed down with it. But when you're united to Christ, what happens is that it, it cuts the union with the world and unites you to Christ, I mean, that's big, like, whole Bible theology right there. And yet, it's true, and it's beautiful. 
You're no longer connected to this thing that's falling. You're no longer connected to death and separation from God and destruction and hell and darkness. You're connected to resurrection life and light and salvation. That's what happens when you connect to Jesus. Last thing, our union with Christ means that, yeah, we're, we're united with Christ in, in his suffering and his death. But we are also united with him ultimately in his triumph. If you're united with Christ, you're going to win because Jesus is going to win. You're going to live because Jesus lives. You're going to be glorified because Jesus is going to be glorified above all the cosmos. If you're a Christian, you're, you're in an amazing spot. United to Jesus Christ from all eternity and looking forward to your ultimate triumph in heaven. I want to I read you this last little quote from a theologian. His name's John Murray. He's written stuff on union with Christ. But this is just a beautiful way to sort of sum this up. He says, he says, union with Christ has its source in the election of God the Father before the foundation of the world. Okay, it's got its source there. And it has its fruition, like its goal, in the glorifications of the sons of God at the end of time. He says, therefore, the perspective of God's people is not narrow. In other words, we don't just look down at the dirt. We don't just look at today or this week or this year or this century. No, our perspective is broad and long. It's not confined to space and time. It has the expanse of eternity from the electing love of God the Father and the counsels of eternity to his glorification with Christ in the last day. It has no beginning and it has no end. So, he asks, how... Can the believer walk through life, a life like this no less, with such joy? How can he have patience in the perplexities and adversities of the in-between? How can he have confident assurance with reference to the future and rejoice in hope of the glory of God? It is because he cannot think of past or present or future apart from his union with Christ. It's beautiful, isn't it? Go live as a Christian. Go live as one who's united with Christ and whose future is as secure as your Lord's. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you and praise you for the fact that by your grace, we are united to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are his, like branches united to a vine. We are his, and we thank you for that. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the just enormous ramifications of that truth and live in their light every single day of our lives until we stand with you in eternity. We ask all that in the name of Jesus and always to his honor and glory. Amen.